and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Happy May, everyone. Spring is springing, flowers are blooming, but around these parts, it's Little Mermaid Month. Now, historically, if you've heard me on other podcasts, you'll know that Ariel is not necessarily one of my favorite Disney princesses, but... This month, we're getting the live action Little Mermaid, so that makes things a little bit different. One of the newest additions to the Disney live action movie series is The Little Mermaid, which follows the adventures of the ever curious mermaid princess, Ariel, who will be played by the amazing Halle Bailey. For almost a hundred years, Disney princesses have been a pillar of pop culture. I mean, they have a music, a fashion, and even a way of speaking that's all their own. They serve as positive representations for children everywhere, for the most part, and provide an excellent snapshot of the complexities of representation for women in film and TV. As you could probably guess so far, this month's topic is going to be about all things Disney princess, their history, their music, and their impact on pop culture. You also may notice that May is a special month because there are five Wednesdays this month. So we'll have our usual four episodes around this topic. But then at the end of the month, there's going to be a special bonus episode where I will be joined by one of my very good friends and the host of the House of Cinema podcast, Cinema Joe, for a very fun and hilarious Disney princess tournament. So if all of that sounds good to you, let's get started. So our journey into this month's topic always begins with a little bit of history, of course. Y'all know that I like to kind of set the foundation so that I can reference it throughout the month. The interesting thing about the history of the Disney princess is that it also kind of doubles as the history of all the times the Disney princess movies bailed out Disney as a company and brought it back into the spotlight. Like, yeah, we, we love Mickey and he's an icon, but the princesses have bailed out the mouse on one or two or four occasions. The first of which was Snow White. Now to set the scene, Disney as a company up until around the early 30s was doing almost exclusively shorts. That was kind of the medium du jour for animation. The attempt at a full length animated movie hadn't been done in massive numbers. Now, of course, Disney is not the only animation studio on the planet. There are many studios around the world who were attempting to do full-length animated features in some capacity. I remember there was one that was that predates Snow White by a couple years, and it was fully like shadow puppets. I cannot remember the name for the life of me, but I remember feeling every bit of that full-length animated feature. Um, But that predates Snow White. So I think Disney likes to put out the fact of like, oh, it's the first full length animated feature. And maybe the first full length 2D animated feature, maybe the first full length, you know, ink and paint celluloid animated feature. There's a lot of red tape around what is the first animated feature. But needless to say, it was amongst the first. Disney as a company is making these these shorts. And then in 1934, uh, we all know him, Walt Disney comes and he's just like, hey, I would like to attempt a full length, full color animated film. 
I think we can do it. And I think we should base it off of the tale of Snow White. So it was one day in 1934, I believe, where he gets a room of animators together and he kind of like tells the tale uh, complete with drawings of the story of Snow White. And basically it's like saying like, hey, we're we're going to do this. I think this is something that, you know, we can do. Um, especially coming off of the heels of, you know, Steamboat Willie, which was amongst the first like kind of pieces of animation ever, um, Silly Symphonies, things like that. So like Disney had a couple of hits, short form hits, but hits under their belt at this point. And so a full length feature was the next step. So they get started and it takes quite literally all of the resources that the studio has at this point. I mean, it is an all hands on deck situation at the studio at this time. They kind of pulled in every animator who was working on Snow White in some capacity. Most, if not all of the money that the studio had and made from prior releases was going towards Snow White. Like they were putting everything that they had, even I think some of Walt's personal assets went into Snow White. So it kind of had to be a success. Like there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so because it was an all hands on deck situation, that means that everyone was kind of firing on all cylinders. So if you look at Snow White, it is definitely one of those movies that like you may not remember in like full, but what stands out about Snow White to me is that it is still legitimately, it's gorgeous. Like it's an, a gorgeous film to look at. And it's because of all of the resources that were being put into it, even kind of going a bit above and beyond the resources that they had. I think at the time they were about... $250,000 over budget. Um, so, you know, for the 30s, that's a lot of money. So adjusted for inflation, $250,000 in give or take 1935 would have been about $5.5 million. So they were way over budget. Um, and eh, they were like really kind of putting a lot into this movie. So much so that people outside of Disney in Hollywood were looking at what they were doing and they were like, this is never going to work. Like, this is completely insane. There's no way that Disney is going to be able to attempt something like this and it be successful. So much so that there was one um, big news story around the time, like the story of the production of the film was was taking place that they called it Disney's folly basically saying like there's no way that anyone's going to want to sit and watch animation for longer than you know five minutes which is what was the standard at the time and so you make your way to around the late 30s the movie is done they release it it's a massive hit people love Snow White and they are enamored with the animation they're enamored with the voice acting which is uh, was a really big part because they were initially just going to kind of take popular like radio hosts because again there was no tv so who were the kind of celebrities of the time where were they coming from if not for film it was probably coming from radio so they were just going to cast 
you know, radio hosts and personalities to play, you know, the respective characters in Snow White. But to play Snow White herself, there was a pretty like extensive, massive national tour, one could say, of finding who was going to play Snow White. It was a hundred people like probably nearing thousands in Hollywood who auditioned, but ultimately it went to uh, Adriana Casalotti. Every time I think about this, I always think about the, um, there is an episode of, I think it's in season two of Documentary Now, uh, starring Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. And they, <laughs> they mention um, Adriana Casalotti because apparently, I don't know if it's true, but in the context of the episode she was like paid scale for it like she wasn't paid a lot to be the first to voice the first disney princess and so that was the whole thing so people loved like almost every aspect of the film and this gave disney kind of a window into like okay there's something here like we can take these classic fairy tales with these heroines and you know make these like technicolor feature films and may have them be really really engaging um and it also kind of pushed the technology that they were using at the time too so i guess as i've mentioned the film put forth a ton of resources including the invention of the multiplane camera and if you've ever been to disney world and you're interested in animation history in any capacity i highly recommend going to hollywood studios and going to the exhibit that's around walt disney's life called one man's dream and one man's dream has a like a i'm not sure if it's the original i doubt it uh because it's these things are massive but they have a um a multi-plane camera and you can see like how they basically created depth with these different layers of cells and then would photograph those different layers. And so you get this really great depth of field with this, this camera. And this was a relatively new invention created surrounding this film. So Disney princess films not only have pushed the boundaries of storytelling and the boundaries of, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that Snow White is the most heroic of, of Disney princesses. It, you know, it's still the thirties, you know what I mean? It's still the thirties. So, you know, there's a certain standard of how women were going to be depicted, um, that they were operating within. And so, you know, take it or leave it um that wouldn't get better until a lot later than, than snow white than the 30s um but ultimately like these movies were kind of continuing to thrust disney forward as a studio and then as a company in a larger scale so then there's this massive jump forward in time because we don't get another disney princess film until 1950 with cinderella and famously cinderella with most disney princess films if you go on google and you put in how snow white saved disney there are probably a ton of articles <laughs> surrounding each of these respective films because most disney princess films helped disney in some way especially financially um like if they needed the the studio to be revived in any type of way uh, they were going to do that via a, a Disney princess film more often than not. And Cinderella is absolutely one of the massive, one of the biggest contributors to that. So like I said, came out in 1950. For uh, the reason for the big jump between 
Snow White coming out in the 30s and Cinderella in the 50s is what happened in the United States in between that time? World War II. So World War II is a big reason why there was a kind of a big time jump between the two Disney, the first two Disney princess films. And that's because a bit of the studio of Walt Disney Studios in Burbank were kind of taken over by the U.S. Army. And so there were many people that were working there, animators who joined the war effort. And so they were making like promotional films and, you know, all these things that were aiding the war effort. So clearly Disney as a company wasn't able to fully focus on their own endeavors and they were contributing to the war effort via, you know, a lot of different, you know, little shorts and stuff and one could say propaganda, but we were, that's a story for another day. We move on. So you get to the late forties, early fifties, and you've got Cinderella and Cinderella, again, another massive hit because people have been in this drought of Disney princess films for such a long time. Like it was a big deal that Disney was making another Disney princess film because Snow White had done so well. And especially after a massive war that took, you know, a lot out of people, something like that was more than necessary. And it reflects in the box office for Cinderella. But the big thing about Cinderella is not necessarily the box office, but the kind of surrounding elements of the film that kind of paved the way for how Disney especially would market their films. So one one piece is that I think Cinderella was like one of the first or amongst the first films to release a soundtrack ahead of the film, which is rather common now. Like, it's, it's pretty common for most movies to have like a soundtrack that contains songs from the film or, you know, pieces of the score, what have you, um, ahead of the film to kind of bolster up marketing. It's happening right now with The Little Mermaid, as you've, you've probably heard, um, Halle Bailey's version of Part of Your World, which was released again ahead of the film. So that's one big thing. And because of that, I think the soundtrack for Cinderella stayed at like number one on the Billboard charts for a full year. Like it was not going anywhere. It was a major, major hit. But then also another big piece of this puzzle is merchandising. Cinderella was one of the first Disney films to really bolster merchandise around it. And that ended up doing dividends for them because they were able to not only because there was no mechanism really for selling these films at home you've got to sell things connected to the film for use at home so like you couldn't buy a vhs tape or a dvd of course in the 50s so you're buying things that are adjacent to the film that remind you of it and may you know incentivize you to go back out to the theater and watch the movie again and so that's where all of this marketing and all of the clothes and the dolls and the books and all this stuff Disney put this massive push behind the merchandising and ultimately that kind of bolstered the entire industry around merchandising adjacent to films Um, a lot of that started with Cinderella everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And so we jump again a little bit forward in time and then our next Disney princess film is Sleeping Beauty. And Sleeping Beauty isn't quite a film that saved Disney, but it was kind of film that informed a declining Disney. And we don't often use declining to describe Disney at all. Like it's just not something that we tend to do because Disney is this massive pop culture juggernaut. It's it, it, it can't fail. It is one of the big five, you know, media conglomerates right now. Um, or big four probably at this point. But it, we don't think about Disney ever potentially going out of business. But around the time of Sleeping Beauty it began to be something that we talked about a little bit more. So Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959. And slowly, a couple of years after that, Walt Disney dies. He dies in 1966. And at that point, Disney as a company is completely lost like they don't really know what direction to go in because their kind of creative head is is gone like Walt was a very active part of most of the productions happening within Disney and a lot of these ideas were coming from him so when he dies them as a company they're like what do we do (laughs) like what's going on you know what I mean like what's happening and so when you think about like movie history especially animation history disney kind of falls off the radar in the 60s to really the 90s like there was some bubbling up in the 80s and we'll get there but as far as like being this animation juggernaut that it was in the years before from the 60s to the 80s disney was in a really bad way as a company and basically kind of on the brink of not being a studio anymore there's an amazing one of my favorite documentaries of all times called waking sleeping beauty that talks about kind of what was going on with disney around this time like pre the renaissance period and they kind of go into a lot of detail as to what was going on there was a lot of kind of corporate turmoil there's a lot of turnovers between CEOs. There was a lot of CEOs coming in who just didn't really understand the business, who didn't really understand movies or didn't understand theme parks. And so there's just this massive bubbling up of like corporate confusion that's going on with Disney around this time. And so again, you get another massive jump in time before we get another Disney princess film that brings Disney kind of out of the ashes, rising like a phoenix. And so around the 80s is when we get our fourth Disney princess, and that's Ariel. Now, I do want to say that there were a lot of films around this time that did contribute to Disney kind of getting, getting its groove back, so to speak. 
one of which was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which Disney was one of the like collaborators on. That in and of itself is kind of a, it's a mixed bag of who gets like credit for what and all these things. It's the production story of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a mess. Um, I don't know if I've told it on the podcast. I feel like I have, but I may not have. Anyways, if I haven't, I definitely will at one point. Um, but there was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There was also Oliver and Company. So like Disney as a studio is kind of starting to to get the vibe going. And that's because they get a new CEO in the mid 80s by the name of Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner appoints a man by the name of Jeffrey Katzenberg to be the head of Disney Animation. And so he kind of really turns the ship around and turns the public's idea and perception of Disney Animation around around this time. And so their kind of out the gate massive hit is The Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid is a lot different from the first three Disney princess films because Ariel, you know, for all the things that, all the crap that I talk about her often, and it's really not her, it's the fans sometimes, but that's a whole different thing. But for what it's worth, Ariel is a lot more of an active part of her own movie than say a Cinderella, a Snow White, a Sleeping Beauty, aka Aurora. Um, she is a different Disney princess and Ariel really comes in and breaks the Disney princess mold. And a lot of that has to do with how she was depicted. So how she's drawn, you know, the vocal performance from Jodie Benson, which I still hold up that Jodie Benson's best voiceover performance is her as Barbie in the Toy Story movies. Again, another story, another day. Um, the music. So you've got Howard Ashman and Alan Menken who come in and really revolutionize the Disney sound. Like they borrow from these, you know, they are, they come from the world of theater. And so they bring that sound and that big like Broadway feel into the film. And you get a movie that is moons different from Snow White, but has just as much, if not more, appeal to audiences. People love Ariel. People love The Little Mermaid. And that sets the tone for the next 10 years of Disney, where they are turning out hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. And it really started with this mermaid, this mermaid movie. You may be wondering, like, why aren't you going into like more detail about how they did that? That's going to be an episode for later into the month chronicling the production of The Little Mermaid because it is very interesting and it very much marks a turning point of Disney as a company. And so, like I said, when they start turning out hit after hit after hit after hit, you then get in 1991, you get Beauty and the Beast starring Belle. Again, I've been very vocal about my you know, one could describe disdain um, for for Belle, but for all intents and purposes, Beauty and the Beast is another massive turning point for Disney as a company because it is the first of their films to be nominated for Best Picture. And that is when Best Picture was five films. Five films. And an animated film was one of them. And I don't doubt, and I, I never will, even though Beauty and the Beast isn't one of my favorites necessarily, it is one as an animation nerd that I always hold in very high regard because number one, if you watch it on Disney+, Plus, I don't know if they did like a 4K remastering 
on it, but it is legitimately, it's stunning. It is stunning to look at. Um, no matter big screen, small screen, whatever it is, the the remastering of Beauty and the Beast on Disney Plus is absolutely gorgeous. So if you haven't watched it in a while, highly recommend. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. But there are so many elements of that film, similar to The Little Mermaid, that just make it feel different. And a lot of it has to do with, again, the music, again, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. And we're going to get into the the sound of Disney princess films chronicling you know the composers and the lyricists behind you know some of these these big musical moments from these movies because they really kind of a disney princess is also the songs that she sings and one of the biggest things that mainly howard ashman and alan Menken introduced into the disney princess kind of sound was the idea of the i want song um, which had kind of been around in Disney princess films, but they really wanted to hammer it home with songs like, you know, part of your world. Like that is the, the, the like typical I want song. It is this thing that becomes synonymous with Disney princesses. It is something that they, you know, like whenever you think about a Disney princess song where she's kind of lying on a some form of something where she's like laying about and she's looking off into the distance and singing about her desires that is an I want song and that becomes synonymous with the Disney princess around this time again due to the work of the brilliant Howard Ashman and Alan Menken but again we're going to get into that later in the month there's going to be a whole episode dedicated to the music of Disney princesses and I'm very excited for that so the 90s are a big big boom for Disney princesses because in this time period we get Ariel in 1989, we get Belle in 1991, we get Jasmine in 1992, we get Pocahontas in 1995, we get Mulan in 1998. Technically we also do get Esmeralda in 1997's Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, She was included in the first kind of run of the Disney princess lineup, but eventually she was swapped out. So we don't really count her. Um, but this decade was massive for a lot of more princesses beginning to infiltrate the, 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 the lineup. And as the decade goes on, as I've mentioned, all those characters, they get more and more complex as, as characters. And so there's a big jump from Belle to Jasmine, who's kind of this very like headstrong, you know, she knows what she wants type of princess to to Pocahontas, which, you know, again, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in that movie, many of which you could deduce. Um, but there's a lot going on with her. But Pocahontas, for what it's worth, again, also is pushing that boundary of like what it means to be a Disney princess. And then of course, Mulan is kind of this, like this pinnacle, you know, like she serves as this big, big jump in what a Disney princess could be. And it, and she's technically not like a princess, like with a capital P, like, I think she's just more considered like nobility within like the Chinese, like royal, like royalty, but Mulan still counts. Um, and so all of those princesses kind of paved the way for the current era that we're kind of experiencing with, with Disney princesses. There was kind of a drought, you could say, <laughs> of Disney princesses for a long while. Again, there was another big jump of about 10 years where Disney, I think, was starting to try and, and experiment with reaching different 
audiences. Um, mainly, I think more like probably male audiences because there were a lot more films that weren't, you know, you had a decade's worth of like Disney princess and Disney love films. And so they want to, you know, veer the other way and you get more, I guess, like boy centric. And I'm using that term very, very loosely because anyone could have enjoyed these films. You get more like boy centric action-y films. Um, so like The Emperor's New Groove, Treasure Planet, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, you know, you get more films like that um, that I think are catering to a lot broader of an audience. And so the Disney princesses kind of go on hiatus a little bit uh, for a little while. And then by the late 2010s, you start to get a revival of the Disney princesses. So you get Tangled, which is Rapunzel. You get the first black Disney princess in Tiana from Princess and the Frog. You get Moana and then... Well, before Moana, you get the the massive bump that was Frozen. Frozen was, and I think still is, one of the highest grossing uh, animated films of all time. It was a massive, massive hit. And I know I've used that term a lot so far, but it's very true. If you were around, which most of you, if you're listening, you remember when Frozen came out, like how pervasive every element of that film was insanity insane um but it was another really big push for the company and it, it brought us into the current era that we we're experiencing so then like i said you get films like moana and you just ultimately kind of look at this whole picture of disney princesses so like you start out with snow white and you end up with now, I think the newest Disney princess is going to be Asha from Wish, um, which is a movie that hasn't come out yet. Um, but I think it will be coming out at some point, either this year or next year. I hope that this provided kind of a whole view of, of Disney princesses because they are a kind of massive part of not only Disney history, but animation history and pop culture history. And so I'm super excited for the rest of this month to kind of dive in. Um, to the good and bad and the ugly of, of Disney princesses, I think they're not completely infallible. There are a lot of elements of all of these films that are, you know, some are more problematic than others. But I think by and large, it's, you know, a property or a collection of films and a collection of characters that end up being more of a net net good um, but I hope that this gave a good overview of kind of the history of the Disney princess and that the history of the Disney princess is all the times Disney princess movies saved Disney. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-P-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to go and do a massive Disney princess movie marathon. I'm not going to remember all of that. Bestie, I fully support that and I get it. And so I've left all of that information in the description down below. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop 
culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now.